you remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 22 through 30 this morning. Luke 13 verses 22 through 30. The words are also printed in your bulletins. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God that you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first will be last. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you do, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Well, it has been said about preaching that it it does one of two things. It either uh, comforts the afflicted or it afflicts the comfortable. Uh, This morning... This is going to be afflicting the comfortable. On the Easter, we had the joy of finding comfort in our affliction. This morning, Jesus' words for us are strong and uh, are a very powerful message for us uh, to hear. You know, as uh, the youth are going out on the retreat this coming weekend, I couldn't help but think of uh, one of the retreats that I had done uh, at, our pre- at my previous church down in Georgia. Um, several years ago. Um, it was uh, one that kind of stands out in my mind. Uh, it was at the point where I had gotten with the students where I had been there for a couple years at that point, and they knew that I loved it. They knew that I cared about them, not just uh, on, a, on a very uh, surface level, but also on a very deep spiritual level. So I felt like I had gotten to the point where I could be honest with them. I had earned the right to speak to them candidly. If you've ever uh, interacted much with teenagers, um, you need to work up the right (laughs) 
to speak with them candidly. Um, and so I, I'd, I'd earned that right, I felt. And so this one retreat, uh, I felt uh, called by God to, to use the theme verse of uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, which is, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And I went on to challenge them in the way that they were living their lives, uh, claiming Christianity but not displaying it in the way that they lived on a daily basis. Um, And I used a particular illustration. Uh, I had heard a sermon not long before that uh, from Paul Washer. He's a, a Southern Baptist preacher. And there was an illustration that he had used that really stuck with me. And this was the illustration that he used. And uh, he was talking to about 5,000 students at this point. And uh, in, his, uh, in his sermon, he said, Imagine if I came running in here, and I was late. And I ran up on stage, and I said, I'm sorry, you'll have to forgive me. I apologize for being late. The obvious question would be like, well, what happened? Why were you late? Um, well, on my way over, I had a flat tire. And I went to change it. And as I was changing the tire one of the lug nuts fell off and rolled into the road. And not thinking, I went after it. And as I stood up with the lug nut in my hand, suddenly there was an 18-wheeler 20 feet from me. I got hit by the truck, and that's why I was late. I am very sorry. Now, what would you think of me, he said, if if I had told you that? Logically, there would be two responses. One, you're lying. There's no way that that could possibly happen. Or two, you're crazy. You're just making it up. So what he said was that when we have an encounter with Christ, having an encounter with Christ is way more powerful than having an encounter with an 18-wheeler. When we have an encounter with Christ, we are changed. The, the mantra that we used on that retreat that the students reminded, uh, were reminded of is that you can't be hit by a truck and not be changed by it. The same is true with the gospel. You can't have an encounter with Christ, with the living, with the risen Savior, and not be forever changed by it. So the Spirit was moving uh, in the spirits that evening when, uh, when we had given that talk. Uh, I don't know if it was a momentary experience, uh, if it was long-lasting. I texted one of my old students this past week just to see if she had remembered the uh, if she had remembered that retreat, and uh, she did. I was uh, pleasantly surprised by that uh, that that she had remembered. Um, but I pray that it made a lasting effect in, in the students' lives. You know, this morning as we look into this text in Luke chapter 13. Uh, we're looking at a very specific part of the gospel. Um, I had a professor in seminary who said, you can't say everything when you say something, because if you say everything when you say anything, you end up saying nothing. (laughs) You could follow that. So the gospel is very multifaceted. You know, on, on Maundy Thursday, we talked about the fact that Christ is our atonement. We talked about his death, and we focused on that. At Christmas... We, we focus on the incarnation, that Christ has come to be a part, uh, to be like us. On Easter, we, we celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. 
we focus on one thing at a time. That it doesn't make the other things any less true. When we talk about the mercy of God, that doesn't make His justice any less true. If we focus on His justice, that doesn't negate His mercy as well. My children are very different. And we have to deal with them differently when we punish them. We don't do that to be unfair. We do that because we know our children well. Or at least we try to. Jesus was able to tell different truths to different people at different times because he knew his crowds and he knew who he was speaking to. He told them what they needed to hear when they needed to hear it. And I strongly believe that the message that Jesus spoke to the crowd that day is a message that we need to hear today here at Trinity. So let's look at the context. What is going on here? Uh, as we've mentioned over the last several weeks, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. As it says here in 22, he went through his, the towns and the villages. He was teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. He's journeying to his death. He knows that the end is near, and so he is speaking very candidly. He is teaching the people with very strong words. So a man shouts out in the crowd. He says, Lord, are those who are going to be saved, or will they be few? So we need to understand the context of this. So the Jews at that time assumed that the Jews were the ones who were going to be saved. That they were the ones, not the Gentiles, simply Jews. Because they were God's chosen people. And as long as you weren't an obvious murderer, uh, a stealer, an obvious sinner, then you would be uh, saved. You would be a part of God's kingdom. And in this sense, they did believe that the number of who would be saved would be small. Because in the grand scheme of things, the number of Jews in the world compared to Gentiles was relatively small. But in Jesus' answer to this question, will it be few? In a sense, the answer that he gives is yes, but not in the way that you think. He said, many people, yourself included, who believe that they are in the kingdom will not be allowed in. Jesus says that there will be few because many people who thought they were in will not be. And they'll give excuses to God as to why they should be in, but they will be denied. And there is going to be great sadness and great anger, weeping and gnashing of teeth, because the people who thought they would have been in will be denied. So Jesus' message for them is very clear and it is stark. He says, don't get caught assuming that you are in. Instead, strive to enter God's kingdom through its narrow door. So how does this apply to us this morning here at Trinity? I believe that we are the man in the crowd because I believe that we have the same assumptions. And I say we because I include myself in that. I believe that our assumptions uh, about who God will allow into the kingdom are just as narrow as this man's are and often misguided. We assume that we are in God's kingdom and then we rest on our laurels. How is this evident in Christianity in America today. 
When we believe that we can pray a prayer, go to church, tithe, say that we're pro-life, like the right posts on Facebook, vote Republican, and be covered. The majority of the people in our country claim to be Christians, but if you were asked, are we a Christian nation today, what would you say? We claim to be Christians, but how are we any different from the world around us? Do we look different? Do we act different? Do we speak different? Do we live different lives than the people around us? Jesus is very clear. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus is telling us not to assume. Because Jesus knows what happens when you assume. He knows that you are left out of the kingdom. You know, Reformed American Christianity, I believe, has a hard time here. Because... We have a hard time when we are being told to do things. When Jesus says to strive, I think that, that uh, we feel like it smacks a, of legalism, of, of works righteousness, of, of trying to earn our salvation. When Jesus tells us to do something, we respond by saying, oh no, no, I, I'm saved by grace through faith alone. However, saving faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by repentance, and by a changed life. You cannot be hit by a truck and not be changed by it. Jesus is giving a very clear command here. He's telling us to strive, to strive. This word strive here in the Greek is the word agonizomai. You can tell what English word we get from that. It's agonize. He is calling us to agonize as we seek for this narrow door, agonize to enter through the narrow gate. So what, what does this mean? What does it mean for us to, to agonize, for us to, to strive? It means that we need to search the Scriptures, and it will tell us. And what do the Scriptures say? Well, if you look at the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Ask yourself, am I growing in my knowledge of God's holiness? Am I growing in the knowledge of my own sinfulness? Is the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ looming larger in my life? And is my life marked by daily repentance and humility? One of my favorite books of the Bible is Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives some very difficult verses here. He starts off in the chapter, in verses 4 through 6, giving every reason possible why he had the right to assume that he was in the kingdom of God. In verses 4 through 6, he explains that he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, 
He was a persecutor of the church. He was flawless when it came to obeying the law. But how does he respond to that? Starting in verse 7 through 11, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He considered everything in His life rubbish. That is a very, a very sanitized way of saying what Paul is meaning here. It was garbage. It was trash. He considered that all nothing compared to knowing Christ. He was, willingly, he was willing to share in the sufferings of Christ so that he would attain the resurrection from the dead. And so what does Paul do? What does he say that he does? He strives he presses on. Continuing in verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's eyes are on the prize. He has the long view. Paul presses on, straining for what is ahead of him, for Christ. He didn't conform to the patterns of this world. He took a stand for Christ, and he longed to share the good news of the Gospel, no matter what it cost him. His life was radically different after he had his encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. And from that point on, he was striving to follow the narrow road. If we're honest with ourselves, living a radical life for us means slapping a fish on the back of our cars or posting something controversial online. Is that truly radical living that God is calling us to? Parents, a great indication of our desire to strive for the narrow door is this. What is your desire for your children? When you think about the little ones that are sitting next to you, what is your desire for them? Do we want what the world wants for our kids? Do we want them to simply to be happy, to, to get a good education so they could get a good job, raise a good family, hopefully do better in this life than we were able to do? Is that what we want? I pray that our desire for our children would be that they were so infatuated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
pray that my children would grow up to know Him, to love Him so much that they would be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. And that's a hard thing for a parent to really desire. I can't imagine what my reaction will be if my child comes to me when they're 18 and says, you know what, I want to take the gospel to this fill-in-the-blank, dangerous, (laughs) war-torn area because they don't know Jesus. And I want to share the gospel I know my response will be, no, you can't go there. No, they might kill you. You could die there. Is that going to be my response? Or is my response going to be, if that is what God is calling to you, is that is what God is calling you to do, then go. And if you do not return, then I'll see you again when we meet in his kingdom. This is what Christ is calling us to. This is what it means that everything else is rubbish except for knowing Christ. Do we want our children to enter through the narrow door? Or do we want them to be left outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is most important? Paul strives for that which is most important in his life. You know, our passage this morning says that one of the most important things is that God knows us. If we were to ask, be asked the question, what's, what's the most important thing? Uh, a typical response would be like, that we know Christ. But in reality, the truth is, the most important thing is that God knows us. Uh, I heard another man who used this illustration. You know, if I walked up to the White House and knocked on the gates there and said, please let me in. I know Barack Obama. I'm from the south side of Chicago. (laughs) We know each other. They would say, no way. You're not getting in here. But if Barack Obama walked out to the gate and said, I know Mike Venema, they would let me in. No questions asked. The same is true in the kingdom of God. Seek to be known by God. You know, Jesus gives us a very clear command here this morning. He says, strive to enter. Agonize to enter through the narrow gate. It's a gospel call for us to agonize in our lives. So our calling this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, my calling to you, Trinity, is do not assume. Do not assume. Do not be like this man in our passage who assumes that his Jewishness is enough. Do not think that being a member of this church and having your name on the rolls is enough, because it is not. Jesus is calling us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Do whatever it takes because in reality, is there anything else that is more important? Is there anything else more important than being known by God? According to Jesus' teaching, this narrow door will not 
be open forever. Jesus tells us that the master will rise up and he will close the door. And those who are left on the outside will not be allowed entry. This will happen. And God will not accept our excuses. We can't say to him, but God, I was at Trinity every Sunday. I put my kids through Sunday school. These excuses will not get us into the kingdom. And we will be left outside where we will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth, great sadness and great bitterness and honestly great anger. These are not meant to be scare tactics this morning. This is simply the truth. Jesus tells us the gate is narrow. He tells us many people who will attempt to enter will not get in. Think of Pilgrim's Progress. I know that many of our students went through it uh, during Sunday school. As Christian is making his way to the celestial city, he meets meets so many people along the path. But how many of them actually seek out the narrow path that leads to the narrow gate? There are so few of them. So what is our response this morning? It is striving to enter through the narrow door. And honestly, what this means is in reality, this narrow door, uh, if we think about the many and this broad way that leads to destruction as we read in Matthew, to enter through the narrow door means to go and to live a life of Christian humility and of repentance. Repentance isn't just a one-time act where when we are saved... Uh, We participate in this. It's a continuous lifestyle for the Christian where we continually admit the awfulness of who we are. And we look to Christ for mercy. It's where we stop pretending that we're actually better than we really are. Where we stop conforming to the patterns of the world so that we look no different than the people around us. We do whatever it takes. So as you contemplate what God is calling you to do this morning, because each one of us is different, as we respond in prayer and as we we sing our final song this morning, honestly, do whatever you need to do, because it is that important. If you need to fall on your knees and to repent of your sin, then you need to fall on your knees and you need to repent. We have the delicious aroma of fellowship lunch that is flowing up here and it makes it hard to concentrate. If you need to skip fellowship lunch so that you can get right with the Lord and confess your sins, you need to skip fellowship lunch. Because what is more important, entering through the narrow gate or through the broad one? The call that Jesus has to us this morning is to not wait is to examine ourselves. It is to not to assume, but to throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our, our prayer to you is just really simple this morning. I pray that you would just remove from us a spirit of assumption. Convict us of our sin and drive us to our knees in repentance. Give us courage to account everything a loss except for knowing Christ and being found in Him. 
Give us strength to forget what is behind and strive towards what is ahead. Father, may we raise the banner of Christ. May we wave it proudly. We pray this in Jesus' name.